Welcome to r slash malicious compliance, where a Karen wants her steak done very, very, very well done. Hey everyone, this is Dabney, aka r slash. And before I get into today's episode, I just want to say that I have started a brand new YouTube channel. So if you like my content and you want to see more, or if you just want to support me, then go to the description to find the link to my new channel. I'm experimenting with a new type of content that I've never done before where I'm actually going to be on camera. So I would really, really appreciate it if you could check out my new channel, drop a like, subscribe, and let me know what you think. Anyways, on to today's episode. Our next Reddit post is from Careful Confidence. So I'm a pretty petty person and I'm a smart ass. I know that I was a dick here, but I think that it was justified. I was a chef at a very nice restaurant. One of the top things on our menu is an A5 olive wagyu. If you don't know what that is, that's an $800 steak. I got an order for four of them at one table. I cook all four of them the way they should be, which is rare due to the nature of the steak. And I do that every time unless instructed otherwise. We use a special unit for cooking called a salamander. It cooks our steaks at 900 degrees Fahrenheit, so we put our steaks in only for 30 seconds on each side. One of my waiters comes to me in tears, saying that that table wanted me. So, I put on my customer service face and walk up to the table. But before I even get to the table to ask if there's a problem, some lady barks at me that it's raw. I apologize and ask if she would like me to cook it more, and she says that she wants it done for another 10 minutes. I tried to explain that this would incinerate her steak, but she barks at me, You heard what I said, so go do it. I was tired of this BS, so I just smile and say, No problem. I take the steak back and toss it back in the salamander for 10 minutes. Honestly, it hurt to ruin such a good steak, but it's what she asked for. So when I take the steak out, it literally fell apart into ash. I personally brought her the steak with a huge smile on my face. She said, what the hell is this? I didn't want this. I cut her off and said, I heard what you wanted and I did it. Our next Reddit post is from Vanna Black. Years ago, in the 90s, I worked at a hellhole of a call center. It was my first office job, and I tried really hard to be professional. What I didn't know was that a call center is basically the same as a restaurant. Everyone was sleeping with each other, on drugs or alcohol, and the managers are idiots. There was a guy who worked in a different pod who was always hitting on me. I was not interested. I did my job, went home, and didn't socialize. I didn't even eat lunch in the break room because I lived like five minutes away. Well, there was a manager who had been sleeping with that guy, and she thought that I was coming between them. She would make up excuses to harass me. That I wasn't taking enough calls, that I didn't clock in and out of the system exactly on the minute, etc. One day, she really went off the rails and started publicly shaming my outfits. I had on a dress and cardigan which she insisted was too revealing. The dress went down to my knees and I had on pantyhose. She wrote me up and sent me home to change. I was really upset and started digging through my closet looking for something that she couldn't pick apart. Then, inspiration struck. My dad is a textbook accountant. Khakis, short-sleeved button-ups, and ties. So, I borrowed an outfit from my dad and I was swimming in it. You couldn't see a single curve. I went back to work and hit it straight for my desk. 
Wouldn't you know it, the manager spotted me and made a beeline directly for me. She pulled me into HR, complaining that I looked unprofessional. I told HR that this is what my dad wore every day, and he's a consummate professional. HR agreed that my outfit was acceptable, but the manager wouldn't let it go. The dress code was gender-specific, and she argued that I wasn't dressed like a woman. I ended up just going home for the day, rather than deal with it anymore. A few days later, the dress code policy had been updated with vague language about looking professional, but it didn't even give examples of what was appropriate. The memo was posted in several places. This meant that everyone in the call center could now basically wear whatever they liked, as long as it wasn't ripped jeans or a tube top. The manager was fuming because HR had taken away one of the things that she could lord over people. I didn't last there much longer, but hopefully no one ever changed the dress code back. Our next Reddit post is from Tacky Queen. Many years ago, I was an elected union president at a Fortune 500 company, but I was only in charge of one contracted group. As such, the bargaining power of the main company was much higher than my own. But even they couldn't intervene too much. My group's contract switched from Company A to Company B in 2012, but the contract remained unchanged. Company B inherited all the contract requirements of Company A, and they agreed to honor them, but they opted to fight me on several minor clauses when it came down to it. Most were solved without much conflict, but the major sticking point was in regard to uniforms. Our contract ensured that we were given an allowance to pay for new uniforms and vouchers for steel toe boots every year. When it came time for our new vouchers, they refused, citing that they had given us a slight raise which should offset the cost of the boots. I informed them that a cost of living raise did not void the portion of the contract that required them to provide vouchers for shoes, to which they responded that they just hadn't figured out how to provide vouchers yet. After assurances that they would provide the vouchers as soon as they could work it out, I dropped the issue. Unsurprisingly, months later, they still hadn't provided vouchers for replacement shoes. It should be noted that this was a very large campus, and many of us walked several miles a day in these shoes. And the shoes were caked with chemicals and dirt, and started to look pretty vile within a year. We had to wear these same work shoes in office areas, and we started to get complaints. I decided to lean into this. This is where the malicious compliance comes in. No new shoes? Fine. I'll just rig them up to last longer. I went out and bought several rolls of the flashiest and most obnoxious duct tape that I could find. I began to repair holes in my shoes with duct tape and extra fabric to the point that my hot pink shoes became easily recognizable. The safety team for the main company was so amused by this that they gifted me hot pink safety glasses and gloves to match. I also lent out my gaudy duct tape collection to any employee who needed to upgrade their shoes. Suddenly, the complaints about our dirty shoes were replaced by complaints about obviously duct tape shoes. Whenever we were asked about them, we would tell both union and non-union co-workers that this was a small protest against the refusal to honor the shoe vouchers in the contract. Next year rolls around, and still no shoe vouchers. But suddenly, our uniform allowance was increased by 150 bucks to allow for new steel-toed shoes to be purchased. After speaking to the union members, I agreed to allow that in place of the vouchers. I kept my duct tape collection permanently on display as a threat, and I would use it anytime safety equipment was being replaced and required repair. 
Our next Reddit post is from Sweet Sophie Brown. This isn't my story, but my mother's. She died recently at the age of 89, and my sister and I were reminiscing. This is one of our favorite stories involving our mother, V. This happened many years ago, about the time that I graduated from high school. V had taken a job in a public kindergarten, which was her first job since she and my dad got married. Now, my dad was always a bit of a bully, especially towards my mother. My dad was not a nice person, and that's a whole story in itself. My mom had survived ovarian cancer at the age of 33, so she was probably about 38 or 39 when this happened. Now, my dad insisted that if she was going to hold down a job, then she also had to do all of her chores when she got home. So, cooking, cleaning, laundry, etc. I can't remember exactly what prompted the argument about her chores, but something didn't get done that he expected and demanded that she do. My dad told my mom that she must tell her boss that she was quitting when she got back to work the next day. Before he left for work the next day, he reminded her that she had to tell her boss that she was quitting. Cue malicious compliance. I loved my mom. She went to work that morning, stopped at her boss's office, and said these exact words. My husband said to tell you that I was quitting, and then she just moseyed on to her classroom. <laughs> A few minutes later, her very puzzled boss popped in and asked her if she was serious. She said, no, but my husband told me to tell you I was quitting, so I did. And no, she didn't quit her job until she was good and ready several years later. Down in the comments, we have this post from Ezra. I never know where these stories about 80 to 90-year-old women are going to go. My 87-year-old grandmother told me about the time that she took a job in a doctor's office at just 18 years old, recently married, with her husband overseas in the military. It went well for about a week. Then, the doctor pinched my 18-year-old grandmother on the hip. So, she quit on the spot and moved back home with her mother until her husband came back home. About a year later, the doctor answered his doorbell, got punched in the face, and was told, consider us even. Grandpa had come home. Yeah, like, I hear stories about people who cheat with the wives of, like, deployed military guys, and isn't that just asking for it? Like, obviously, cheating is wrong, and you shouldn't cheat, and it's kind of a risk because you never know what's up with the boyfriend. But cheating with someone who's literally deployed overseas, maybe shooting people, murdering them, learning skills required to kill other people, and you're going to screw the guy's wife? <laughs> Man, people are braver than me because there is no way I would mess with that. Today's episode is sponsored by Coinbase. My second biggest regret is not starting my YouTube channel sooner. My biggest regret is not getting into Bitcoin back when it was like $1. I remember back when Bitcoin was super new, I was interested in it, and I thought about buying some, but I lost interest because I didn't know what to do and it felt a little overwhelming. I really wish that I could have used a site like Coinbase back then. Coinbase is a website that makes it super easy to buy cryptocurrency like Bitcoin and Ethereum. Interested in getting into the crypto game yourself? Then check out Coinbase. For a limited time, new users can get $10 in free Bitcoin when you sign up today at coinbase.com slash r slash podcast. Sign up at coinbase.com slash r slash podcast for $10 in free Bitcoin. This offer is for a limited time only, so be sure to sign up today. That's coinbase.com slash r slash podcast. Our next Reddit post is from Shaftway. 
Way back in the long, long ago, in the before times, mid-level chain restaurants would have these people walk around to make balloon animals for kids as they waited for their food. I was a teenager who needed money, so I did this for a while. The restaurant would pay the agency, and the agency would tell us what restaurant to go to and when. The key to this story is that we were not paid. On an average night, I'd make around 50 bucks in tips over 3 hours, and on special nights, it could be as high as 200. But if there were no customers, I'd make nothing. After working for several months, I must have fallen out of someone's favor, and I got assigned to a restaurant in the business district. I have no idea why they wanted someone making balloon animals in there. My key audience was kids, and I never saw anyone there under 30. The first night there, I made 5 bucks, which wasn't even enough to cover mass transit to and from the location. After being assigned there twice in a row, I complained, but I was told that if I didn't go, then I'd be banned from any more assignments. Cue the malicious compliance. The next week when I was assigned there, which was the third time in a row, I waited until there were a couple of guys at the bar that were tipsy. I go up to them and ask if they want balloon hats. No charge. They were hesitant, but I promised they'd be good. They agreed and I got to work. I broke out all my skills to make these hats that were clearly people in a cage. The people in the cage were pink and had prominent bubbles on the chest and derriere. An inflated balloon tied around the waist made for a bikini bottom, and a carefully tied balloon in their hand made for a bikini top. They asked me what it was, and I told them that it was a stripper in a cage. They loved it. I got a $20 tip, but more importantly, they went to every person in the restaurant to show off their stripper in cages hats. They demanded to talk to the manager to tell him how awesome it was. This super uptight, fundamentalist Christian manager. The manager was majorly pissed off and told me to go home early. The agency called me pissed off, but I used my most innocent voice to tell them that I was just making what the customer asked for, and I didn't know they'd make a scene. The agency said, well, they banned you from ever coming back. And next week, I was back to another kid-friendly $17 an hour location. And then beneath that, we have this story from Darman555. I play in a rock band and a children's music band. I started twisting balloons for the kids in the kids' band. I started twisting twisted balloons for adults in bars on the band's break. A quick and easy one is a penis hat. It's got a band around the head, two testicles on the forehead, and a big pink dong pointing up and out. One time, someone took their kid to the bar that I was at. The kid got one. I told them it was a unicorn hat. Our next Reddit post is from McShaner. Several years ago, when I was working for a construction company, I used to spend a lot of time on construction sites. My company had a pretty good travel and meal policy, so I never had any issues. But one rule they did have was that you could purchase meals on the company credit card only if you were doing an overnight stay. The idea was that they didn't want meals to be charged to the company if you were just driving back home each night anyway. Most of my work sites were pretty far off, so this never made much of a difference to me because I always stayed at a hotel during these trips. One project needed me to work at a place that was 45 minutes away from my home. I wanted to go home each night and sleep in my own bed, but I was told that I couldn't incur food expenses because I wasn't staying overnight. I just wanted to eat dinner before I went back home, but I wasn't allowed. 
Cue malicious compliance. I began to book hotel stays costing $150 a night and incurred food expenses of $50 a day. Now I was charging lunch, dinner, and the morning breakfast. So in the end, the company paid for close to $1,000 of expenses because of a policy that would have otherwise cost them like $50. Nobody ever asked me about it because firstly, it's a very large company, and secondly, they knew that I hadn't broken any rules. Down in the comments, we have this post from Technos. I worked on a project with another consultant once. While my job was in the trenches, Jerry's part was in the meetings. The problem was, Jerry seemed to be the only person at the company following policy and actually reserving meeting rooms. Because whenever Jerry booked a conference room, he'd show up to find it already occupied by people who didn't want to leave, or he'd be interrupted mid-meeting by a pile of folks who wanted their usual room. If we didn't know how disorganized this company was, we would have thought that it was intentional. So, what did Jerry do? He booked a suite at a hotel down the street. All meetings would be held there. There was a fair bit of grumbling because now people had to <gasps> walk three minutes outside and they had to carry their laptops. The whole thing went fine until the job was completed and we had to get paid our final bill. The company balked at the $5,800 in hotel expenses that they were being billed for. The company had meeting rooms and Jerry only lived half an hour away, so why did he think that he could get away with this? Well, because of a single line in the contract. The client will reimburse the contractor for any lodging or meeting expenses that the contractor deems necessary. When Jerry came back for another job a couple of years later, the client assigned him a meeting room and gave him the only key. That was r slash malicious compliance. And if you like this content, check out my second YouTube channel by clicking the link in the description.